I doubt that's going to help at all. Do you plan to change the plot? It's bigger. It's bigger. I took your resolution down, which stretches it out. That's better than nothing. Okay. Yeah. That's the second Thank you. <laughs> 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 
All right, well, it's uh, time to get started, and we are certainly glad that you're here. And uh, if this is your first session with the uh, Bear Valley Lectures, we want to remind you to be sure and register. Can you hear me? There you go. Be sure and uh, register if you haven't done so already. But uh, if this is, uh, if you've already been here, again, welcome. You're in for a treat. I know that uh, everybody perhaps in this room knows who Dave Miller is, but if you don't, just want to remind you, he is, of course, the director of Apologetics Press. Dave has a lot of experience in ministry, preaching, debating, writing, uh, does seminars, and has just uh, loves the Lord, is a faithful Christian. I want to encourage you to invite Dave to come to your congregation to uh, conduct a seminar. He has a variety of seminars that he conducts everything on things that have to do with defending Scripture to uh, uh, seminars about Islam versus Christianity. So uh, go to that website, uh, look up the seminars that are available, and then the vast uh, and the variety and array of resources that are available to you, to the church, to your friends. So be sure that uh, you support this good work and pray for them and pray for Brother Dave. He has uh, trained gospel preachers, uh, has a good family, and uh, we're just so blessed to have Dave and all that he's done for the church and for the cause of Christ throughout the world. So Dave, we, we love and appreciate you very, very much. We're excited to hear his lesson today, and he'll be speaking again, uh, I believe it's tomorrow, and so I know that you'll want to be here for that. Let's uh, begin with prayer, and then we will uh, have a song, and then we'll have Brother Dave come and uh, begin his lecture. Let's pray together. Thank you for your presence today. Let's jump into our subject. If you've been in the Lord's Church any length of time, I'm sure that you're familiar with this material, primarily from uh, 1 Corinthians 13, but... um, uh, repetition is good. It's necessary for us to uh, constantly remind ourselves what the Bible teaches, especially when we are trying to evangelize people who have these beliefs that hampers their ability to arrive at the truth. Uh, here is a quick summary of what the Bible teaches on the matter of the duration of the miraculous. Remember the, the miraculous, I don't think in this PowerPoint I define it. The three terms are used in the, in the New Testament to refer to the supernatural. The sign, wonder, and miracle are the three terms that are, come out in our English translations. But we're talking about that which is above the natural order. And therefore, it would take um, intervention from a divine power in order to do that. 
And I would suggest to you that that's not to be equated with the term we use, providence, although that word's not used in the Bible, but it's all over the place, where God can work within time, within circumstances. You know, a good example would be Elijah's prayer to end the drought, you remember? All of that came about through natural means. It didn't just suddenly start raining out of thin air. It came the way rain comes today, from clouds. A lot of instances of providence in the Bible that, in my opinion, still apply today. That God will work with us on any number of things. You've had this happen in your life. So uh, I came up with these little D's here for preachers, you know. (laughs) Definition, design, duration, display, and disposition. I believe that the Bible teaches clearly. And, you know, if you have additional insight, uh, I want it that whatever side effects there may have been to miracles, you know, like if you're healed, a side effect would be you got well. But I don't think that was the purpose of miracles. That was a side effect, a benefit. I believe this is articulated throughout the Bible over and over and over. The purpose of the miraculous was to authenticate God's word as it was being presented orally by God's representatives, God's spokesmen. It allowed the audience to distinguish between all the false teachers that were spouting all kinds of stuff, some in the name of God, they claimed, and those who actually were, because it was backed uh, by God. Let me just give remind you of two examples. You know, this is the case with Moses. Why did God do all this stuff with the snake and the cane and the hand that's leprous and the plagues themselves? Those were all supernatural authentications of God's message to the Egyptian to Pharaoh and to the Egyptian population that that was the purpose and so God gave uh, Pharaoh you know what 10 good sermons there in terms of authenticating God's truth that, that was spoken by Moses in other words uh, God has never expected anybody including Pharaoh to listen to his word if they couldn't know for sure it was really his word So God would not expect people. You know, Jesus even said that in John 10. Remember that? He said, if I don't perform these, and then he uses a term that's a key stylistic feature of the Gospel of John, sameon, sign, used 16, 17 times. If I don't do that, you remember what he said then? Don't believe me. Would you have ever thought Jesus would say to anybody? Don't believe me. If I don't verify my oral claims by demonstrating those claims, including my claim to deity, by backing it up with signs, miraculous events, then don't believe me. And even if you don't believe me, you ought to at least look at the signs. That's proof. That's the logical God of the Bible. Over and over. So Moses would be an example. Another would be in Acts chapter 13 where Paul, you remember, encountered this... uh, Roman proconsul. Isn't that exciting? And this fellow wanted to hear the truth. And so Paul was about to do that, and Elymas interfered. So he kind of, you know, okay, this fellow needs to be shut up. Well, let's just perform a sign in order to authenticate the message that Sergius Paulus wants to hear. And you remember that text closes with uh, Sergius Paulus responding positively. The text says, He was amazed at, and you would expect it to say, at this incredible miracle that struck this guy blind. 
But that's not what it says. He was amazed, astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. So miracles confirm the word. The word then stimulates faith. That's the way it is consistently through Bible. Miracles do not stimulate faith. That's not their purpose. The word of God is what stimulates faith. But you have to authenticate the word of God. I combed through the Bible some time ago and just found instance after instance from the Old Testament well into the New where this is stated over and over. I have a copy of this outline here. and You're welcome uh, to take one. So there is the uh, functional purpose of signs throughout the Bible. And once people know this is the Word of God, then you, might, you and I might think, well, they'll accept it. No. Uh, vast majority of the people, even though they come to a knowledge of the fact that this is actually the Word of God, they still don't want it because of the demands that it places upon them. So once God revealed all the information that He wanted to make available to us, then what's the point of having the miraculous? Uh, the purpose is served. Well, but somebody says, well, wait a minute. You know, we haven't had a miracle performed to confirm the word. And our preachers usually respond to that by saying, well, once the word is confirmed, it doesn't need it again. Which doesn't really help explain to me what that means. What I think is going on biblically is that once you have God's word in its totality and written form, it is self-authenticating. That is, it possesses the attributes of inspiration, if you care to look at it and pour over it. And you're aware of all of those, like prophecy. There's no other book on the planet in all of human history that uh, authenticates itself by fulfilled prophecy, in which the uh, prediction is very specific, and it's separated from the fulfillment by centuries. There's not any book on the planet like that. And yet the Bible is loaded with that. I mean loaded with it. Just, you know, just with regard to predicting the little details about Jesus. You know, like that somebody's going to spit on him. Will you tell me how you could predict that 600 years, 700 years in advance? Spit is proof of Bible inspiration. <laughs> and there's so much of that in the Bible. So... The Bible is self-authenticating and it, it itself is proof of its divine origin because of the nature of it. There's no other book on the planet like it that can make that claim, let alone come through with the proof. So we have no need for miracles. We have everything we need to function in this life and be pleasing to God. Spiritual maturity is now within the grasp of every single individual who chooses to access the means to maturity. And all of that's available to us uh, in God's Word. So, to suggest that we still need to have miracles today is actually, I'm sure the person who does that doesn't intend to do this, but they are in fact undermining the all-sufficiency. You know, if we made a listing of the attributes of Scripture, one of those is it's all-sufficient. It provides you with everything you need that God intends for you to have in order to be spiritually acceptable to Him. Well, if, if, you, if you're thinking we need something in addition to that, then it must not be all-sufficient. All right, let's go now to the text of uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, the most detailed treatment of the phenomena of miracles written to these uh, Corinthian Christians because uh, the Holy Spirit had bestowed upon them these various uh, a variety of gifts and capabilities 
and yet they were being abused and misused. Here's a nice little way, I think, to lay out these three chapters. Chapter 12, definition. Chapter 13, duration. And chapter 14, the actual display of these in, in actual use, practically within uh, the church. All of this uh, coming out of the theme stated in chapter 1, where we have this discussion of division, right, within the church. And so, really, Corinthians is a indication of the extent to which the church was splintered and divided over any number of issues and doctrinal matters. And this was certainly a big one because, um, what, three chapters are devoted to it, clarifying and explaining and helping the Christians to make sense of uh, their Christianity in light of the presence of these. Chapter 13, of course, is showing that you're losing sight of the central thrust of Christianity, what it means to be a Christian, and what and who God is. You know, God is, is love, John said. He is love. And, and that's all tied into all of our responsibilities as Christians to evangelize and so forth. And so because of the superiority of this and its speech, it's it's uh, part and partiality, part and parcel of Christianity, then we're, we're getting off here making too much of this. Come on, you, when you read this chapter, don't you walk away thinking, okay, they made too much out of this. And then you turn around and look at the charismatic world. You all are making way too much out of this. These three uh, phrases, fail, vanish away, done away, are actually the same word in the original. I don't know why. Our, you know, English translators are not under obligation to translate every Greek word exactly the same. Words have different nuances of meaning. I recognize that, even in English. But sometimes, uh, especially, you know, the earlier versions, they tended to like variety. And so in the same context, they would translate a single word different ways. And that can confuse the English reader. Here are the technical Greek definitions of these of this uh, concept. To render inactive, you know, that nails it. I mean, th this is getting down to what this is about. So to condemn to inactivity, to put out of use, to destroy, to remove from the sphere of activity, to make completely inoperative. Okay, so there's a clear declaration in Scripture that the miraculous was going to be rendered inoperative. Well, in order to take the charismatic viewpoint, you'd have to say, well, that's going to be when Jesus returns at the end because they're operating. Well, that would be kind of silly for Paul to go out of his way to say, you know, sometime, someday these aren't going to be around. You mean like when we're all dead and gone? Oh, yeah. Duh. <laughs> and then the word cease. <clears throat> to restrain, prohibit, cause to stop, come to an end. To cease to leave off. So there's the word study of, of the terminology. But here is really in maybe the key expression, I think, for sorting this out in this chapter. Miraculous gifts are specifically identified as being in part, partial. Okay, so that, that concept you have to look at. And I think they missed this. Miracles are partial? What are you talking about? They're partial. And they'll be done away when the perfect comes. All right, so what is that? Because they're juxtaposed. They're set opposite of each other and laid there for you to look at. In part, done away when perfect. And so we end up having to uh, spend time on this. And again, you may have studied this. You may have even come to different conclusions 
a lot of discussion about this over the years. Here is a, a quick summary of what I've concluded in my studies. The first tendency of the English readers to say, well, we're talking about sinless. That's what the word perfect means in English. Right? You look at it on the dictionary. Perfect. Oh, he's sinless. He doesn't have any flaws or anything. So far as I can tell, the underlying Greek term never means that. So there's a case where English can obscure. And again, where the translators may be obscured by picking a word uh, that uh, has had a different meaning develop over time. Jesus, therefore, would be where they would ultimately go to and say, well, he's the only sinless person that's ever come. So obviously this means when Jesus comes again, you're forced to that conclusion uh, once you take that definition. I've had other commentators say, well, no, this is talking about, you know, the end of time, the heavenly realm, paradise, you know, the perfect place. And then you have a, a more recent, I think, um, popularity taking place where they say we're talking about love here. And therefore, we're talking about the condition of maturity, which, again, none of that makes sense to me because Christians don't mature at the same rate. And you might, you can put your finger biblically on a person and say, okay, that person's mature, but that person's not. So how does this subject fit with that? Does it make any sense? I do not think Paul is contrasting qualities or places or perfect versus sinful or morally imperfect. He's contrasting perfect with partial. That was that which is in part. So see, even if you don't have a lexicon, can't get to the bottom of this, you can determine the meaning by what it's being contrasted with. Well, sure enough, when you go take a look at the terminology, you find the in part, meros with the preposition ek, means, here's what the Greek common, uh, lexicographers say, in part, partially, the partial or incomplete, partly, imperfectly, in some degree. So those things that were incomplete and partial, which are identified in the text as the miraculous capabilities, <clears throat> is being contrasted with that which would be Whole, complete, finished. That's the contrast given in the chapter. So our brethren overall, I think, have uh, understood this. And, uh, you know, most of our brotherhood commentators uh, expound this concept. Telios, not referring to moral perfection or sinlessness, but to totality whole, complete. Again, these are all gleaned right from Greek text. That from which nothing is missing, brought to its end, finished, and lacking nothing necessary uh, to completeness. Well, that's exactly the, uh, the way we describe Scripture and what it's intended to be. Now, this same word in Greek, if it's referring not to an object so much, but to a person or even an animal, carries the idea of completeness in terms of one's uh, growth or development. And so it can refer to maturity, uh, but it can also full, uh, refer to the concept of being full grown when applied uh, to uh, persons or animals. Uh, notice in 1 Corinthians, the term is used where uh, it's translated, I guess in the New King James, mature. mature. So that's a, a correct understanding uh, of the terminology. And while this is not a decisive argument because of the way Greek works with its neuter and masculinity, but, uh, you know, you could say cooperatively that this is talking about a thing, not a person, a thing. 
something that when it is complete and finished will no longer uh, require the necessity of the miraculous. In fact, those will be replaced. They will be removed. They will be eliminated, which are very clearly intended in God's grand scheme of things to be very temporary, to be very temporary. So you see it, you know, all through the Old Testament, right on into the New, throughout the life of Christ. And then you find this letter written, what, in the 50s to these Corinthians saying really for the first time, this is all going to be done away. Although I think Zechariah 13 anticipates this uh, in that prophecy, uh, including demon possession and the like. Well, now look at this, the use of this term elsewhere. For example, James uses it clearly to refer to the all-sufficiency of the word, uh, that it will do everything it's supposed to do for us if we will allow it to um, be assimilated into our spirits. The perfect law of liberty. Paul's putting the, I think, the slant on that we're talking about when this is completed. Uh, you know, our, our brethren, some of our more liberal brethren, you know, when they kick it at how our brethren have interpreted the Bible over the years, make fun of it, ridicule. Their comeback on this is that, um, oh, so we're talking about the canon, you know, which was supposedly formalized in church history by what? <laughs> Pre-Catholic persons? in the 300s or so? No, we're not talking about that. Why would you jump to that conclusion? That's a smokescreen, a dodge. We're talking about when God has finished saying what he wanted to say. And there's obviously gonna be a time span there for all of that to be accessible to everybody. And all those early churches, Corinth and Rome and Thessalonica and Colossae and Esau, all of them, they, they had, Partial access in the sense that they only had an immediate letter that was given specifically to them, but you find there in Colossians 4 where Paul said, now you be sure to give this to them and you get the one I sent them. So there it's already spreading. Uh, the, the motivation for duplication of the text, introducing textual variant, would have occurred very early. Christians would have wanted to spread the scriptures around throughout the Roman world to fellow churches. And... Uh, and then, of course, you, uh, they did have access to a lot of that information, but it was partial and uh, smattering here and there and incomplete through the miraculous spokesman. So there's how God chose to reveal his word initially through inspired spokesmen, who then, uh, many of whom then committed to writing. And then, he, as far as I can understand, he gives us two illustrations from chapter 13. When the church possessed only bits and pieces of God's will, as revealed to them, which they were able to access through these miraculous gifts. You know, right there in Corinth, they had tongue speaking, but they also had prophecy. Paul, Paul says for the church, that, that's the one you want to have. Because see, that's teaching, inspired teaching. In that state, therefore, the church could not achieve full spiritual maturity. And so the church was like a child. Members lack the necessary elements to reach spiritual adulthood. You know, if this is true, you and I are so fortunate to live this side of the cross and this side of these developments. Once all of God's will had been revealed, the church then had the means available to become, and he uses the term, a man, which, according to wokeism and everything, is very sexist, very uh, <laughs> ignorant, very intolerant. 
I haven't looked at that word. That might be the general word for man and woman, but elsewhere the Bible uses the term for male. So once the church had access to all of God's written word, the means by which the word was given through the miraculous gifts would be obsolete, useless, and therefore put away. Miracles, therefore, according to this chapter, are childish things. Remember he said, hey, when I grew up, I put away childish things. Well, that's what miracles were to the infant church. Childish things. wonder if the charismatic movement knows that. And then you follow that reasoning out. Miracles were the spiritual equivalents of pacifiers that were necessary while the church was in a state of infancy. Well, now that the church has access to all the truth, we do, don't we? Is there any more we're waiting for to come down the pike? There are religious groups within Christendom that say yes, but they're wrong. Then the use of tongue speaking and other miraculous enhancements in the church today. I worked on this slide, so look at it. It's like adult men and women sucking on pacifiers. How would they like that comparison? Don't mean to be unkind, but that's clearly the illustration that he's giving. Why would you, as an adult, resort to childish things? Why would you want to do that? So it conjures up a rather ridiculous picture. Then, then he moves to a second illustration. And if, again, if I've understood the culture and so forth, when uh, mirrors were not exactly like what we have today, there were a number of types of mirrors. I actually found this ancient Greek bronze mirror. But he says, you know, the necessity of miracles to reveal and confirm God's word, it's like looking through your looking at your reflection in a mirror, but the mirror is not really giving you the totality of what you look like. Uh, the details are missing a uh, little bit uh, difficult to get the, the complete picture. But once the New Testament had been revealed, miraculous gifts no longer, no longer necessary, and so it would be equivalent to us standing face to face. So you can see it in its completeness. And again, that's the case with Scripture. Now it takes a lot of study, obviously. And that's, uh, you know, we're admonished to do that over and over and over again. But the point is, we've got it. We have access to it. And notice that most people throughout human history did not. Verse 11, now I know in part. Let's uh, decipher these expressions. That is, my knowledge of God's revelation is incomplete due to limited access via the miraculous element. But then, that is when when all of God's word is made available, shall I know fully, even as I also was fully known. So I'll be able to have access to all of God's insights that are necessary uh, for the development of my spirit. And, you know, we could put one disclaimer here. That is that, again, God's word is so repetitive that there can be portions of the Bible, maybe that you're not familiar with, and yet you're familiar with the teaching in those passages because you get those in a lot of other places in the Bible. That surely is part of the wisdom of, of God in terms of how he chose to divulge that portion of his mind that he chose to divulge to us uh, when it, it is so repetitive. It, it just is. I think of parents that, if you had decent parents, they kept saying the same stuff over and over. Didn't I tell you? I'm not going to say that again, stuff like that, you know. Well, those are good parents because we need repetition. That's why Peter said, I'm, I'm writing to remind you. We need to be reminded a lot, don't we? 
because the world is Satan is after us in our flesh. Well, if I understand Ephesians correctly, he said the same thing to that church that he said to the church at Corinth. Ephesians 4, I think, it has a lot of parallels here. First, he quotes from the Old Testament and refers to this idea of gifts. And again, you know, you read denominational commentators, you're going to get a lot of different things on this, but here's one approach to this for you to consider if you haven't. I would suggest that that's talking about the miraculous. When Jesus ascended, uh, he said, he told the apostles, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit in my place, the Comforter, the Parakletos, stand beside you. And, uh, and the term gifts is used in the New Testament um, in different ways, but certainly to re the charismata referred to these miraculous capabilities. And notice that he lists some of them. Look at the repetition of the verb there. The ones he lists are apostles, prophets, evangelists, and then uh, most all of the commentators would say that these are not two separate offices, but they're teaching pastors. And notice that even though we have pastors today and evangelists today that do not have miraculous capability, that does not mean that the, the original first ones didn't, again, because of the necessity of, the, of equipping the church. And notice uh, the word till. You know, here is uh, a term that um, carries time with it, until, newer translations rendered until until the time up to which this ministry and use of gifts was to last. So again, just like the Corinthians, you got these, but it's in part, I mean, it's partial and it's gonna, we're gonna have completeness coming, they'll be done away. Same basic concept. Then he says, till we all come to the unity of the faith. Well, you know, you tend to wanna look at that and say, well, when's that gonna happen? And I believe the Bible answer to that is never. So we can't be talking about that. There will not be an eventual unifying of all believers in doctrine, belief, and practice as Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17. Not going to happen. It certainly will never occur within Christendom, will it? Hopelessly divided, factionalized from Catholicism to Protestantism and far beyond. They're never going to get together and terminate the thousands of divisions of doctrinal disagreement. That's not going to happen. <laughs> well, you know, he's talking about the church. Uh, how old are you? <laughs> I've lived long enough to know not going to happen in the church either. It's not. The first century congregations didn't have it, did they? You'd think if anybody could attain to it, it'd be those first churches of Christ. They neither had it within or without. Nor have folks post-first century churches that you and I are familiar with have achieved a unity among themselves or within. And obviously, even at the second coming, both the world and the church will stand in a state of division. But if you look a little closer at the, at the language here, and again, this is not a decisive argument grammatically, but it is interesting that the article is placed before faith and knowledge. So it seems to me that he's using the, the expression, the faith, the same way it's used many times, not always, in the New Testament. Contend earnestly for the faith. Galatians 1, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith, which he once tried to destroy. Acts 6, a great company of priests were obedient to the faith. Uh, Elymas sought, sought to turn away uh, 
Sergius Paulus from the faith. Acts 14, disciples were exhorted to continue in the faith. Uh, in Lyconia, the churches were strengthened in the faith. So this is a common expression, uh, certainly in the New Testament, even with Paul in Galatians. So um, the faith and then the knowledge, some of the words of uh, one of the, some of the fonts have dropped off. Therefore, would it seems to me, apply to the completed body of information that constitutes the Christian religion. Now look at the context here. This is uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, back up eight verses, the seven ones. There's one faith. Well, isn't that talking about the, the totality of Christian doctrine that constitutes the Christian religion? embodied in the New Testament. Some of our old-timers use this illustration. The miraculous is like scaffolding that was constructed you know, around the church while it was still being prepared. And then once it's completed, then you remove the scaffold. Now God's truth is self-authenticating in terms of its divine origin. So the miraculous served its purpose in the same way that scaffolding is useful for a period of time, but then removed and discarded as unnecessary and superfluous paraphernalia. I decided to sit down with 1 Corinthians and then with Ephesians and see how many direct connections there are contextually. And here, uh, here's the result of that. You can have that chart as well if you'd like it. They line up really well. Remember how Scripture interprets itself. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And I believe this is one of those examples. You may question in one verse of the use of a term, but then lay it down next to a parallel passage and it becomes clear, doesn't it? The Bible does that a lot. All right, how much time do we have? Oh, I can't have enough. I have it going. It's 2.36. you got seven minutes. Okay. Our brethren, you know, when our brethren were a little more bold and maybe brash, I don't know. They, um, they I admire them. They, they took God's word so seriously, they were willing to put their lives on the line. And so, you know, going into the roaring 20s and coming out of that period, uh, the modern Pentecostal movement, by the way, started January 1, 1900. So prior to that, Christendom you know, was more dignified in worship and so forth. And man, that Pentecostal movement hit and then splinter groups over the last hundred years or so, you know, Church of God in Christ and uh, just there's all, there's a bunch of the, the charismatic movement, especially in the 60s, just mushroomed. Uh, how many of you are old enough to remember people like Oral Roberts? Mm -hmm. Just a bunch of that. And, um, you know, it was pretty wild stuff that, that went on in those groups. Uh, <laughs> My mother claims that her grandmother, who was living in Tulsa, Oklahoma, went to one of those meetings. And uh, all that stuff was going on. And she just stood up and started reading Acts 2. And somebody yelled out, there's a devil in the house, meeting dismissed. And man, they just cleared out of there. She just kept reading from the Bible, which was a, apparently a threat, you see. <laughs> But uh, here's some instances here of uh, people. You know, John O'Dowd's the one that, uh, this, this Texas preacher, I'm telling you, 
he was like that rough Texas preacher. What was his name? Did he tap? Yeah, he reminds me of him. He he was bold and he went to a, a big charismatic gathering where they were going to raise somebody from the dead. In fact, the deceased was in the, the coffin and they were allowing people to file by like a funeral in the coffin to see the deceased and they were going to raise him from the dead. So Brother O'Dowd got in line. These are true stories. And he, uh, when he got up there, you know, his party pulled out a, a hat pin, is the way I understood it, and inserted it into the deceased leg. There was a premature raising from the dead right there. And the story goes that there was such a commotion created that the police were called, and when they came and wanted to know who was disturbing the peace, everybody pointed at John O'Dowd. So they carried him off to spend the night in jail. True story. I had Gary Workman confirm that years ago because he went down when John O'Dowd was still alive and asked him about the details of that. Uh, let's see, George DeHoff. Let me tell you about Brother Woods first. Uh, he was in a debate in Arkansas. This is on tape if you would like to get it. And uh, he sparred back and forth with the Pentecostal preacher that he was debating, you know, trying to get him to drink some Clorox, you know, and stuff like that. Of course, he wouldn't do it. But he finally got him to, to say, you know, that if, if you can speak in tongues, then I'll, I don't remember now what it was, I'll perform a miracle or something. So <clears throat> Brother Woods got up <clears throat> and said, Voracious um, Barah Elohim Hashemayim Baha'aris. And then he kept going. <clears throat> And man, there was laughter among the Pentecostals. And apparently the Pentecostal preacher said to the people within hearing of him, that's not from the Holy Spirit. And they all laughed and somebody said, he said that's not from the Holy Spirit. Brother Woods just let it calm down, finally silence. And he said, well, all I did was quote Genesis 1-1 and, and Deuteronomy 4-2, the Shema uh, in the Hebrew. And you're, you're saying that's not from the Holy Spirit? <laughs> George DeHoff was preaching in Lepanto, Arkansas. You know where that is? And uh, he said that he tells this story. I think I have this on tape. You know, he's the one that wrote that little book, uh, Why We Believe the Bible. I remember reading that as a child, hearing, hearing the local preacher preach on how God. That um, lighted my appetite for apologetics. But uh, Brother DeHoff was at this gospel meeting, and uh, he was sitting up you know, on the rostrum. The song leader was leading the last song before the preaching was to start. And back in those days, you know, those old buildings, no air conditioning or anything. The windows were open. Usually the doors were open. Well, this fellow in a dress nice suit came walking in the back of the building, came down the aisle, came right up on the rostrum while the singing was going on and leaned over to Brother DeHoff and said, uh, the Lord spoke to me today and said that uh, I was to come here tonight and do the preaching. Brother DeHoff later said, well, that, that was really sad that here the brethren had gone to all this trouble to get me and the Lord had gotten somebody else. He, he felt really bad about that. <laughs> but he had the presence of mind to say to this fellow, you say the Lord spoke to you today? He said, yes. Well, what time was that? He said, well, it was this afternoon. Well, about what time? Well, it was about 4 o'clock. So Brother Dahl said, well, that explains it. Because you see, the Lord spoke to me at 7 o'clock and told me that when you get here to sit down there and be quiet and that I'm supposed to do the preaching. 
That's so typical of our brethren. See, they knew the truth. You know what many of our liberal churches would do if that happened now? Yeah, oh, brother, if the Lord spoke to you. Come on, I'll sit down. You can have a pulpit. Well, if you know your Bible and you know what the Bible teaches on this matter, then you know this is not truth. Now, either the fellow is mentally off or he is a deceitful worker, a wolf in sheep's clothing. All God's terminology, right? Not mine. And therefore, you're going to deal with it accordingly. By the way, the local doctor's daughter, I think it was, came to Brother DeHoff afterward because they didn't know what had happened and said, what, what that man want? What was going on there? And so he related what had happened. She said, you didn't say that to him, did you? He said, I sure did. The proverb says to answer a fool according to his folly. <laughs> so the Bible teaches very clearly that miracles have come to an end. And we as Christians know that. And hopefully we're equipped then to help others to know it too. <laughs>